Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 31, this evening. In our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us here tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are people, men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And we try to cover two or three, sometimes four chapters on a Sunday night. I know, four stretching it. Physician, heal thyself. Uh, And it's always good to have a Bible in front of us to be able to uh, read it. Otherwise, you're kind of lost and just listening and not able to follow along uh, for yourself with your own Bible. When we come to chapter 31, it's really a continuation of the reign of Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings that the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. And, you know, I say something like that, and and I've said it a number of times related to him. And we look back historically at him as a historical figure and uh, the great place that he played in, in the history of God's people. But you put yourself in the place of the people back in those days, and they had so many bad kings, so many bad ones, bad ones, bad ones, and then they'd get this great king. I mean, what a refreshment that must have been uh, to them. And so his name is really gold among God's people in the Scriptures. And uh, as we uh, read last week and beginning to look at his life, how he cleansed the temple there in Jerusalem as it had been shut up and filled with garbage by his uh, Father Ahaz, and then he reestablished work, worship at the temple and then kept the first Passover that had been kept in Judah, uh, some believe, for 200 years since the time of, uh, of Solomon, and not only the Passover, but also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, also uh, they were so excited about being able to keep these feasts, and the two feasts together was seven days of feasting. And a celebration of the Lord, sacrifices being made to the Lord. They had such a great time. They decided, let's add seven more days to it. And the king was okay with it, and he supplied the sacrifices for it. And so they did. Now, the Passover, there are three uh, great uh, feasts of the Jewish religious calendar. The Feast of Passover and the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. The Feast of Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. It is a picture of Christ in that Jesus has uh, provided for us a far greater deliverance than a deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. He has paid the price for us, mankind, to be delivered from the very bondage of sin. And so everything in the Old Testament is a picture, a shadow of Christ. And so as great as that deliverance was of the children of Israel out of Egypt, wow, you think about the price that Jesus paid in his death upon the cross and then the witness of the satisfactory payment of his death upon the cross through his resurrection that we could be delivered from the bondage of sin. And so that's what it represented. And then they would follow that feast of Passover with the feast of unleavened bread. And a part of that feast was the children of Israel were to go through their home and remove every bit of leaven out of their house. And in the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin and it was to be removed. And what it communicated was the fact that God's people are not only a saved people, a forgiven people, a redeemed people, a delivered people, but we are also a holy people. We're not just saved and on our way to heaven and then living any kind of leaven-filled or sin-filled life. And so that's what the two feasts communicated to the people. And it's significant in light of what they do here uh, in chapter 31, where we're told that uh, in the afterglow of the celebration of these two great feasts and all that it symbolized, they did not lose sight of what this meant. This wasn't just like free grub from the king. So this was worship of God and what it meant from God. I mean, it's a really big deal, and, uh, and, and people are really turning to God here. And so when all of this was finished, all Israel who were present, they went out to the cities of Judah, and then they broke. That's a strong word, isn't it? They broke the sacred pillars in pieces. You ever break something sinful in your house? Something sinful in our lives? You say, no, I haven't. All right, well. Okay, 
Maybe you haven't needed to. Maybe you've needed to and you realize, oh, I guess I'm a little less than Hezekiah. So they broke the sacred pillars in pieces, these idolatrous pillars that were uh, still in Judah. They're just going to go through Judah with a fine-tooth comb and just remove all idolatry. They cut down, that's another strong word, isn't it? The wooden images, again, idolatrous images, and threw down. It's just strong all the way through. The high places and the altars uh, from all Judah, southern kingdom of Judah, but then also these tribes that had come to celebrate the uh, Passover and the Feast of unleavened bread uh, from the north. Uh, well, Benjamin is from the south, but Ephraim and Manasseh from up in the north. And so that this great purging of idolatry even went up into the northern kingdom of Israel until they had utterly destroyed, another strong term, isn't it, them all. And then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. So here they are, and this is wonderful. They are, they are making sure that their lives are consistent with their temple experience, with their church experience. So they've had this great worshiping of God in spirit and in truth, thankful for their salvation, thankful for the cleansing that God brings into their life. And then they realize, well, we just can't do that in a room like this to God and then go home to whatever is under our authority and have it be filled with sin. That's going to be inconsistent. And so in the afterglow of this worship of the Lord, they went then through the land and they removed everything that was inconsistent with what God's word had to say. And, and so they didn't want to just be hearers of the word, as James warns us, not to merely be hearers of the word of God, but doers as well. And so that was important to them. We don't just want to go through religious motions and keep feasts and do this kind of thing, pat ourselves on the back if our houses are filled with idolatry and filled with sinful things. And so they went and they cleaned up the land uh, north and south. There is something that, you know, it's a, it is a great, great, uh, really a priceless uh, thing that occurs when God speaks to us. When he speaks to the privacy of our heart. Or sometimes we'll be in a room like this and the Bible's being taught. Or maybe worship is going on. And the Lord just speaks something to us. I think that's the, that's the most priceless voice in all of creation. Says, Damien, I want you to do this. Or Damien, I don't want you to do this. And he speaks to us about something in our lives. The tendency that can happen is that here they took care of all, taking care of all of this idolatry and stuff before they even went home. Still under the influence of the, the spiritual experience. Sometimes we can have God speak to us in a room like this. Something very clearly. Damien, I want you to take this out. I want you to add this. I want this, this, whatever it might be. And by the time we get across that parking lot, into that car, start that car, Drive all the way home, and then God forbid, put the remote in our hand. But but pretty soon, the further we go along without obeying that prompting of the Holy Spirit, this doesn't get done. It's as if God never spoke, which is like one of the greatest things that can happen in a human life. So the passage really speaks to us of the importance when God impresses us in a Deeply spiritual experience with him related to whatever he might want to say. Here it's a case of removing idolatry. They said, we don't even want to go home because we know what will happen to us. We're going to take care of this while we're still under that strong influence and conviction leading of the Holy Spirit. And so they did. And it's something we all recognize related to our lives and very commendable in their lives, and then very commendable as we obey those promptings of the Holy Spirit as well today. Hezekiah then uh, began to uh, enact further spiritual reforms uh, in the land. Uh, again, he 
fixed up the temple, got it repaired, got services going there. But there were other things that needed to be taken care of. We remember that he got the temple fixed up and cleaned out and ready to use in the first month of his reign. The second month of his reign, he had the Passover. So, I mean, he's knocking through some things, but there's still some things to do. And so Hezekiah then appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites according to their divisions. Uh, each man according to his service, the priests and the Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings, to serve, to give thanks, and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. So David had established this whole uh, structure, and God had given him the structure for how, what the Levites were to do, what the priests were to do, their responsibilities, the whole, uh, how they would be by tribe, or not by tribe, but uh, by family. They would uh, be in, in Jerusalem serving at the temple for one month, be off the other 11, then going back into other cities in the land of Israel, being an influence for God throughout the land. And, and all of this was all set up, and it was to be in place. All of that had been neglected for a long time. And so he steps in and he says, let's reestablish this. Let's get these men that have been set aside by God, chosen by God, to take care of the temple, the sacrifices, and all of these things that get them back into their place doing what they're supposed to do, and that is to be attending to the spiritual condition of the nation. And so the king then appointed a portion of his possessions for the burnt offerings, for the morning and evening burnt offerings, and burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, and the new moons, and the set feasts as it was written, is written in the law of the Lord. So they're getting going, and again, we're going to see in a moment, uh, the priests have been greatly neglected. They have not been supported as the law of Moses uh, demanded that they would be supported by the people. Uh, obviously, sacrifices and offerings weren't being brought to the temple properly as the law of Moses uh, 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 demanded and, and required of the people. And so here is the king. He gives enough of the, uh, these animals and all to get things going. And moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute now support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord in addition to the sacrifices. Now, here's what God did. You got the 12 tribes of Israel. And as they're coming into the promised land, he said, listen, all of these other 11 tribes, you all get an allotment of the land. You know, Zebulun, you're going to be here. Naphtali, you're going to be here. Asher, you're going to be here. Benjamin, this is where you're going to be. But he said, the tribe of Levi, they don't, I don't want them to have a portion in the land. He said, I'm their portion. Their lives were to be given over completely to, again, attending to the spiritual needs of the nation. In Jerusalem, the sacrifices, pointing people to God, teaching the word of God, all of these kinds of things. And so what God was doing, and he knows us very, very well, he said, I want this group to be completely focused on these things because I know if I have them do this and I let them be ranchers, I know what's going to get crowded out. They're going to be thinking about their steers and their cattle more than they're thinking about being an influence for me and the nation. So he says, I, I don't want them to have land. I don't want them to have a distraction. This is what they're going to do. The other 11 tribes, you get the land, and I'm going to bless you in the land enough so that you can give offerings to the support of the temple, including the priests and the Levites, so they can do what it is that I want them to do, and then you can do what I've called you to do. So that was the setup. But, uh, you know, pretty soon, obviously, in the apostasy of Ahaz and others, uh, the, the priests and the Levites uh, weren't being supported. So they're all going back, in, you know, into working wherever they can to support themselves. And so Hezekiah, he rectifies this situation. And as soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, 
oil and honey and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything that they brought in. So this is this is the time of the year where harvest is starting to roll through the end of the year. This is kind of like early summer and then on through. And the children of Israel and Judah who dwelt in the cities of Judah uh, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep. Ooh, protein. <laughs> and also the tithe of the holy things which were concentrated, consecrated to the Lord their God, they laid in heaps. They just brought in so much of, of just what was a tenth of what God had provided to them. It was so much it just began to pile up in heaps. And in the third month they began laying them in heaps and they finished in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the leaders of Israel, they came to the temple and they saw these heaps of of all of this giving, and they blessed the Lord, just gave him praise for uh, the response of the people, praised the people, blessed the Lord and his people Israel because of their quick obedience to obey God in this regard. And so it was a great blessing that Hezekiah didn't have to pull teeth to make that happen. It was in the heart of God's people to do it. And then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. This is, this is a great um, it says a little something about his personality. He comes in and he doesn't like heaps. Probably in his house he doesn't like heaps of laundry. I'm not putting anybody down, by the way. Don't write me. Heaps of this, heaps of that. Hey, there's a place for heaps. You do something with heaps. They belong somewhere, tended a certain way. So they got all these heaps all over the place. And Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, he answered the king and he said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we've had enough to eat and plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people and what is left is this great abundance. And then Hezekiah, he commanded them to prepare rooms at the temple, the house of the Lord, and they prepared them uh, then for these heaps, all of this extra to be stored properly. And when Solomon built the temple, there were storage rooms that were a part of that, but apparently they were lying idle. And uh, so he said, let's get these things taken care of as well and, um, and, and get this, all of this properly stored. And so they, uh, then they faithfully brought in the offerings, the tithes, the dedicated things. Uh, Conaniah, the Levite, had charge of them, all of this uh, giving that had come in. Uh, Shimei, his brother, was kind of next in charge. And then uh, there was the listing of uh, Jehiel, Azaziah, uh, Nahath, Asahel, well, all of these guys, they were overseers under the hand of Conaniah and Shimei, Shimei, his brother, at the commandment of Hezekiah, the king, and Azariah, the ruler of the house of God. So just because God provided abundantly through his people for the support of the temple, that was not an excuse uh, for that giving to be handled improperly. There was accountability that was set up. It was to be handled in a certain way, in a diligent way. And so they set up a structure for that to happen. Just because God supplies abundantly to a ministry, it doesn't mean that that ministry is then free to just waste what's come in. That everything that is given is given for a reason. It's supposed to go someplace, and God will let everyone know where it's supposed to go. And so Kore, the son of Imlah, uh, the Levite, the keeper of the east gate, he was over the free will offerings to God to distribute the offerings of the Lord and the most holy things. Under him were uh, Eden, uh, uh, now I'm just challenged by it, uh, Mini Amim. Uh, Jeshua, and all of these guys right here. They were his faithful assistants. I know when I've been defeated. His faithful assistants in the cities of the priests to distribute allotments to their brethren by divisions to the great as well as to the small. And so 
This, all of this support was then to go to the priests. A certain allotment was to go to each one and their family, and so they made sure that it happened. Beside those males, speaking of the priests from three years old up, who were written into the genealogy, remember Samuel, he was de- dedicated to the Lord uh, by his mother Hannah when he was just as soon as she had weaned him. And so these little, little guys already dedicated as priests to the service of the Lord. Uh, they were written in the genealogy, so they were supported as well. They distributed to everyone who entered the house of the Lord his daily portion for the work of his service by his division and to the priests who were written in the genealogy according to their father's house and to the Levites from 20 years old up according to their work by their divisions and all who were written in the genealogy, their little ones, their wives, their sons, their daughters, the whole company of them. In other words, the whole family was to be provided for in this way. For in their faithfulness, they sanctified themselves in holiness. That was what they were called to do. And here they are being supported in that. And also for the sons of Aaron, the priests who were in the fields of the common lands of their cities. Remember that uh, God uh, spoke to the children of Israel and gave the priests um, uh, a variety of cities that were allotted to them throughout the land so that they could then again be an influence for God and holiness throughout the land. And around those cities were also a little bit of uh, ag area, kind of a band around it. And so um, uh, for the sons of Aaron, the priests who were in the fields of the common lands of their cities in every single city, there were men who were designated by name to distribute portions to all of the males among the priests and to all who were uh, listed by genealogies among the Levites. And thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God, and in every work that he began in the service of the house of the Lord, in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart, and as a result he prospered. Colossians 3.23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. The New Testament tells us as Christians in our service to the Lord, and that was a characteristic of Uh, Hezekiah here. That's how he viewed uh, the service of the Lord. Chapter 32, after these deeds of faithfulness, that's a significant phrase here, because here he is, he's cleaned out the temple, he's reestablished worship there, he has instituted the first Passover in generations, and you would think that the next chapter would be And he lived happily ever after. Or that he just leapt like an ibex or a mountain goat from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. Because we all know the righteous and the godly and the uh, conscientious concerning the things of the Lord. Never know anything of a valley or any kind of difficulty. So here he is. He's just doing everything right. And trouble comes looking for him. And that's just the way that it is in, in the world. I don't think that anyone can be great in the kingdom of God. And you don't have to have a public place to be great in the kingdom of God. But you can't be great for God without attracting enemies. It's just the way that it is. I love the verse where Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he wrote from his own experience And he said, for a great and effective door has opened to me. All right. That's a memorizable verse. It goes on. He said, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so often the two are combined. We like the open, effectual door to us. For those of you taking notes, it's 1 Corinthians 16, 9. We like that door to be open and and all, but so often with that open door, there's the opposition. The enemy rises up to oppose us. We must never, ever determine the will of God or whether God is involved in something on the basis of whether we get attacked by the enemy. In fact, after we walk with the Lord for a while, it almost becomes encouraging when he attacks You get a little alarmed when you're taking a step of faith and he goes quiet. 
Because you just get used to the fact that he's going to try and hammer you on the, on the front end of taking the step of faith. And so this is, this is the way that it is. And Satan is always so quick to test the depth of our kind of public expressions of faith in God at church or at the temple or in Jerusalem as is going on here. And he's going to test them to find out whether our faith in God is really real or whether it's just empty words. And so this is precisely the kind of thing that happens uh, here. And so after the de- these deeds of faithfulness, I'm just a good guy. I'm just serving God and doing right. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and he invaded Judah. How do you like that? Here I am serving God, being faithful and all. And he let Sennacherib invade Judah. Well, what gives with that? And sometimes it's funny how no matter how long we walk with the Lord, when God allows that kind of thing, it surprises us. And it can set us back a little bit. How could God allow that to happen? And there really is, you think about why this health and wealth doctrine and this, that everybody's always going to be rich and always going to be healed and always if we just have enough faith and we're fully obedient and all. You say, why does this get, why does this get traction in defiance of reality? Generation after generation, why does this doctrine have such a hold? Why is it so appealing to people? I mean, it has appealed to us. And, and, and because we have that idea. If I'm good, if I'm faithful, if I'm obedient, then bad things aren't going to happen to me. But they do happen to us. And we do get attacked. So here is Sennacherib. And remember, Assyria. Assyria has already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. So they're a formidable enemy. The Assyrians, um, I don't want to make you feel bad if you're Assyrian. In the room tonight, I would tell you stories about the Scots, except they're not in the Bible. So that's a problem I have just to do some fair play on it. But the Assyrians were very, very ruthless. They were the finest military machine at the time. They were a world-ruling empire. And they didn't just go in and conquer cities. I mean, they crushed cities. And as has been spoken of historically, if you resisted them, they would just simply decapitate everyone in the entire village and then take their heads and pile them up as a pyramid in front of the village in order to not in order not to communicate anything to the village they just conquered because they just killed everybody inside of it. But to communicate to the next village, we don't have a heart. We don't care about you. You want to resist us? We'll just chop your head off. That's all you mean to us. Don't do it. They would skin people and take their skin and cover the entire walls of their walled cities. So this is what Hezekiah is being attacked by. This is the kind of fighting machine, not just the kind of military. It's not a big-hearted military. It's not a fairness military. It's not a strong sense of right and wrong military that's invading the land. It's a ruthless, cruel military in the ancient world that's coming in. So this is what they're facing. It's a big deal. It can be confusing to faith. So he invades, and then he encamped against the fortified cities with the intent, thinking to win them over to himself. And so, of course, Jerusalem was like all of the countries in the world at that time. They would have their capital city, or Judah was, capital city of Jerusalem. And then they would set fortified cities up around where they knew the invading forces were most likely to come from here, come from there. And so there would be fortified cities they would have to conquer in order to get to the capital. Well, he's starting to just knock over these fortified cities now at this point, And Jerusalem is next on the menu. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs, which were outside of the walls of the city, and they helped him. So he makes preparations here now 
before war. And uh, the first thing he does is he begins to stop up the water supplies that were outside of the walls. He doesn't want them coming, laying siege to the city and having all the water that they want uh, to drink. And thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find a lot of water to drink? And then he strengthened himself. And he built up the wall that was broken, and he raised up the towers, and he built another wall outside, and also he repaired the Milo in the city of David. And so he not only takes care of the water supply, but he begins to build defensive walls around the city. He repaired any gaps or any weaknesses in the existing wall around uh, Jerusalem. And then remarkably, he builds an entirely new wall around the city. And you go to Jerusalem today and they show you these. Here's the wall that Hezekiah built. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about something that separates your yard from my yard. It's not like a hedge. We're talking about a wall that's as thick as from here to the far corner of that screen. All the way around the city. Big old wall. Again, it gives us an idea of how seriously they viewed the threat of Sennacherib and how much they did not want to fall to the Assyrians. As a re- the reputation is, is warriors. And, and then they began to make weapons and shields in abundance, just beginning to prepare for war. And then he mobilized the army. He sent military captains over the people. He gathered them together in the open square of the city gate, and he gave them encouragement. And so he mobilized his army and uh, put them and, and got them organized. Captains, and you know, they're here they're, things are going good. The military's a little bit sloppy and all. Now he gets it all organized the way that it needs to be. And you say, well, boy, I mean... What kind of faith does he have in God? Taking care of the water supply and building wall, repairing one wall, building another wall, making a bunch of new arrows and catapults and organizing the army. Hmm. None of what he was doing represented a lack of faith in God on Hezekiah's part. But belief in the fact that faith without works is dead. God promises to the children of Israel, he promised them and his promises to them were not that they would not face battles. What he did promise to them is that they would be victorious in those battles. I think that uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, has made uh, famous a lot of phrases, but probably one of the most famous ones that's helpful in this vein is do your best and commit the rest. Uh, An older uh, saying is, put your faith in God and keep your powder dry. (laughs) It's not because we don't believe God can't do anything. It's just we want to be ready in case he chooses to use us in what it is that he's going to do in the situation. So if he chooses not to use us, that's perfectly fine. But if he decides that he wants to use us, we should be as ready for use as we possibly can be. And so that's what exactly what it was that that he was uh, doing here. Now, in this case, God is is not going to uh, choose to use all of these preparations. He's going to bring victory to them in a different way. But in other cases in the Old Testament with David and other kings, he used their preparations and was happy to do that. So. He then moves, and probably the most important preparation for battle is he then encouraged uh, Judah and he encouraged the military by saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria. Now, why would you say that? Because everybody is dismayed and afraid. (laughs) So he tells them, Don't do that. And don't be uh, dismayed before all of the multitude that is with him, this gigantic army that he's got. We know he's, he's got an army of each, at least 185,000 men with him. That's a big old army. Don't be afraid of the multitude that's with him. And you say, all right, 
Give me one good reason. You tell me not to be afraid. I'd like a reason. For there are more with us than with him. Speaking about God, speaking about the heavenly host, angelic army, angelic uh, realm. For with him is the arm of flesh. Hezekiah says, I don't deny it. That's a big old army out there. They've killed a lot of people. They've wiped out a lot of nations. They've conquered almost the entire known world. In, in, in that part of the world at that time, there's no doubt about it. In terms of, of a strong arm of the flesh, they've, they've got a strong arm. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And as a result of this reminder of that, the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. I think that sometimes it's just good to um, read different passages in the Bible that speak of the heavenly scene. Revelation is probably the best one for doing that. I like to read the descriptions of the angels in the book of Revelation. One has his foot on the land and the other has his foot on the sea. How big is that angel? One is able to stand in the full heat of the sun. What kind of an angel is that? We're not even talking about God. We're not even talking about his right arm. We're not talking about what he can do. We're talking about his creation. We're talking about one angel. The strength, I mean, the power of just a single angel. You realize what God has at, at, at his disposal in comparison to what man has to come against God's people. No comparison at all. It's good just to read about all of that. So here he's speaking to them about the fact that we have a power, a power in God that's far greater, far more awesome than uh, Assyria. There was a Protestant reformer, many of you are familiar with his name, at least by the name of John Knox, great, great man of God. And he declared, and this is very applicational to the passage, he said, a man with God is always in the majority. A man with God is always in the majority. Because God's reputation is tied up in us. He cannot be faithful to his word and allow us to be defeated by evil. In kind of a, a variation off of it, one plus God is a majority. All that matters in any battle is what side is God on, and you know the winner. Now, whether that takes 30 seconds or 30 minutes or 30 years, the timing is completely up to God. But that's the winning side. In fact, no one plus God is the majority. God is the majority. And so he's encouraging them. We've rebuilt the temple. We've reenacted the services there. We've just had the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it wasn't just going through the motions. We did this because we love God. We've repented of our sin. We are right with God and God knows it. And so because we are in this place, we know that God is for us in this situation and he's going to take care of us. I think and it's a... Uh, a quote in a story that I'm very, very fond of. And uh, Frederick the Great, who was one of the most famous uh, German rulers of all time in the 1700s, and, uh, and famous in part for his military successes, he sent a messenger to one of his generals stating, I am sending you against the enemy with 60,000 men. And when the troops arrived, only 50,000 troops arrived. The general sent back a letter of protest and complaint to Frederick the Great, insisting that there must be some kind of a mistake. I'm 10,000 short. 
Frederick the Great said, no, there is no mistake. I counted you for 10,000 men. And I like to think of that in terms of God. How much do we count him for in the battles that we face tonight in our own lives? How much are we counting him for? What weight, what faith, what confidence is birthed in our life, really, truly, practically, in the situation that we're facing by virtue of the fact that our God is the God of the Bible? It should mean something. It should mean an awful lot. I don't say that it doesn't in your heart. I'm not rebuking anyone. But I know how easy it is to hit a trial and some kind of a big thing, and then I'm looking at the greatness of this trial in the light of my nickels and dimes. And I've got to stop, and I've got to ask myself, what am I counting God for in this situation and His promises? And it's a good challenge. It's an important challenge. God values our faith. It's one of the ways that we have to bless him. One of the biggest ways that we have to bless him. To just stop and say, God, I count you for this in this situation. And so I give you praise ahead of time on the basis of this promise in your word for what you're going to do in this situation. And it blesses the heart of our God when we do that. Our faith means a lot to Him. You ask any parent what trust means to them from a child. I'll tell you that parent will die before they violate or let down the faith of that child that's being placed in them. And our God doesn't need to die. He he has enough resources that that doesn't come into play for Him. But it means a lot to him for us to trust in him. This is a beautiful speech that Hezekiah gives here. And very much an anointing of the Spirit, obviously upon it, because the people were greatly strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. The New New Testament equivalent of all of this is, of course, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. Let me read a couple of those verses to you. What then shall we say to all of these things, Paul wrote? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, he's not saying that because God is for us, nobody is against us. The devil's against us. People are against us. The world is against us. Religions of the world are against us. There's a lot that's against us. But the idea is who can be against us and be successful? And then in the remainder of that Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul ransacks the universe in an effort to find something that can separate us from the love of God. And the veracity, the truthfulness of his promises to each of us. It's a great encouragement to our faith. And after this, then, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he sent his servants to Jerusalem. But he and all of his servants, uh, all of his forces uh, with him, they laid siege against Lachish about 30 miles away. He sent the messengers to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah who were in Jerusalem. And this is what the messengers declared. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, In what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? So he demands to know, What's the source of your hope that you are defying me and not surrendering to me? Haven't you heard about me? Hmm. He's going to end up humble before the end of the chapter, as all of us end up being humbled that have that kind of an attitude. He says, of course, it is tough to be like the world ruling empire. You must get full of yourself in rather short order, I think. Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourself over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? If you stick with Hezekiah, you're going to end up dead. 
you're going to starve to death or you're going to die of thirst. So he tries to undermine God's uh, human authority or God's human vessel in the situation, Hezekiah, in the eyes of the people. He said, has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, you shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it. So it's interesting that the cleansing of the land of idolatry, the, the removal of idolatry from the temple and all, word had gotten all the way to Assyria. We're just talking about a few months here now. It's in a great length of time. So they found out about all of this, but they, in, it, 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 it's, they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know anything about the God of the Bible. So they assumed he's removed all of the altars and all that have to do with the Lord, the God of the Bible, not realizing that he has removed all of the pagan altars and all of the pagan uh, idols in obedience to the God of the Bible. So they assume that he's put himself on the wrong side of God. And do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all of the people uh, of the other lands where... Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? And who is there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people out of my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. And so he, in essence now he moves from attacking and, and, uh, and defaming and blaspheming Hezekiah to now blaspheming his God. Your God is a nobody. It's a nut. He's a nothing. He's no greater than any of the other false gods or other gods that we've defeated in all of these other nations. Well, the Bible says that the God, that the Lord listens uh, to conversations about him and takes note of them. So he's listening to all of this. And so the messenger continued and said, Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hands of my fathers. How much less will your god deliver you from my hand? And, uh, and so, again, the attack against, uh, against God doesn't realize that they defeated all of the other nations and the other gods because they were false gods. This God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And furthermore, his servants spoke against the Lord God, against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people uh, from my hand. And then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew uh, to all of the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall listening and uh, so they speak in the language that they can hear and understand. And uh, this is a, a great illustration of um, how to use propaganda, intimidation, fear tactics, all of this. And so now they begin to uh, speak to the people directly in order to frighten them and trouble them that they might, uh, with the purpose that they might take the city. And they spoke against uh, the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, uh, the work of men's hands. So here you have Sennacherib and all of his uh, blustered you and, and all of his propaganda and all of his intimidation and attempt to uh, produce fear in the hearts of God's people. Of course, he's a kind of a type of the devil in all of this. One of the things that the devil tries to do in the heart of a child of God when we're faced by a great crisis or God calls us to take a step of faith, maybe in ministry or something. He loves to try and plant fear in our heart. God never moves us on the basis of carnal uh, fear or fear of circumstances. Uh, the Lord uh, moves us and directs us under different motivations. And so, but the devil uses fear. One of the reasons that, you know, you see some of these animals that have been created, whether they're fish or they're birds or something, and they get in kind of a place and then they're able to puff themselves up to ten times their size and scare everyone away. I'd be terrified if I was underwater and saw something do that. I'm not comfortable in water to begin with. If I saw a little goldfish, I'd race to the shore. But 
but the, the ability to, to do this exaggerated kind of thing. And one of the reasons that the devil does that, he comes against us and tries to do the fear, tries to make himself appear bigger than he actually is, is he fears us being obedient to the Lord and taking steps of faith. And the Bible says, as Jesus spoke uh, to uh, Peter, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. At, at uh, Caesarea Philippi. And Peter said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this rock, this statement that you've made, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the idea is that the Christian kingdom of God is to be an offensive army. We're not to be offensive unnecessarily, but we're to be moving forward. We don't put, put, put hunker ourselves down behind and says, all right, everything on the other side of this wall, the devil's got, there's nothing we can do about that. That's how the devil wants us to think. The Bible teaches that, that if we will advance against even a gate of a city that's held by the devil, and the gate was a stronghold of the city, it will have to yield on the basis of God's promises and God's calling us to do so. So he tries this bluster and tries all of this intimidation and this fear to make us think about just our own survival rather than the advancement of the kingdom of God in our generation, the only generation we have. And so this is the way that he operates. And, and so to be careful not to come under the, the power and the influence uh, of fear because the devil's just trying to protect him. I mean, the devil has watched for thousands of years, watched God speak to people, reveal to them what he wants them to do next. They obey it, and the kingdom of darkness pays a terrible price for that. And the terrible price is, is that light goes into darkness, and individual human beings get freed up from darkness, and they end up walking in the light. It's all about people. All this stuff, gold, silver, you know, titanium, whatever valuable uranium out there, doesn't matter. It's all going to burn one day. The only thing that's eternal in the world today is this Bible and human souls. That's what's at stake in any generation. The rest of it is just setting. And, and so this is what the devil tries to get us to, to, to lose our attention. Let's just hold on. Let's just take care of ourselves. Let's just forget about everybody that's still in the same bondage that we were in. And, and we must not uh, fall prey to that. Now, uh, the, verse 20. Now, because of this, this them speaking against the God of Jerusalem there in verse 19. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, they prayed and they cried out to heaven. And uh, there's a longer, detailed, more detailed account of this in Second Kings, but we'll stay with the condensed version. And as a result of the prayers and all, then the Lord sent, and I want you to at least circle in your mind that next word, an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. And we know from Second Kings that that angel, an angel, not an archangel, not a seraphim, not a cherubim, not even God himself, an angel, Bob the angel, Alex the angel, just an angel, just a corporal, a private, just an angel. He just sends one angel. And in one night, the finest military, we're, not, we're talking about brave people. We're talking about people who know how to kill another human being ten different ways. In one night, 185,000 of them dead on the field. They're gone. The army completely wiped out. That's, uh, God has resources we don't even, can't even dream of in the middle of what we're facing. And God had promised to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, you just trust in me and this man is not going to invade Jerusalem 
In fact, he's going to turn shamefacedly from the land of Judah and return to Assyria. That was the promise that God gave to Hezekiah and to Judah through Isaiah. And so it happened. And so he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, uh, some 20 years later, some of his own offspring, his own sons, struck him down with the sword there, uh, worshiping the god of uh, Nishrach there in, in, uh, in Assyria. So he's ultimately cut down there in the temple. His own god couldn't save him from being killed in the very place of his strength. And thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem, uh, uh, brought gifts uh, to the Lord at Jerusalem, and they brought presents to Hezekiah of Judah so that he was exalted in the sight of all of the nations thereafter. So everybody was happy for the defeat of, of the Assyrian army. So they uh, really brought him gifts and he became exalted, his reputation and everything in the land. And in those days, Hezekiah was sick uh, and near to death. He had some kind of a boil or a tumor or something that was uh, going to be uh, terminal for him. And he prayed to the Lord for healing. And the Lord spoke to him, gave him a sign and uh, ended up uh, healing Hezekiah, giving him 15 more years to his life, as we read in in Second Kings. But Hezekiah, as a result of that healing, he did not repay the Lord according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up, and therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. And then Hezekiah, when he was confronted with his pride, the source of it we'll see in a moment, when Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, when he was confronted with his pride, humbled himself, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So judgment would come upon Judah a little bit later, but not during his reign because of his continued godliness and, and his, his repentance. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. Uh, just the great reign that he had. He made himself treasuries uh, for silver, for gold, for precious stones. He had so much of this stuff he had to store it for spices, for shields, and all kinds of desirable items, storehouses for the harvest of grain and wine and oil, stalls for all kinds of livestock and folds for flocks. And moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much property. And this same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. So just declaring his greatness and his prosperity and some of the great things that he accomplished. And then here is his failure, his folly that occurred late in his life. Verse 31. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to acquire about the wonder that was done in the land concerning his healing, God withdrew from Hezekiah in order to test him that he shouldn't be, in capital, shouldn't be a capitalized H in the he. God knew what Hezekiah was going to do. This test was given so that Hezekiah might know what it was that was in his uh, own heart. And so this uh, testing uh, occurs that God allows. And basically what happened is uh, Babylon is not yet a world-ruling empire. It is a province of the Assyrian Empire at this time. But it's getting very, very strong and it's starting to flex their own muscles. So they heard about this great healing that occurred in Hezekiah's life. So they sent a delegation to, just to respect him, to honor him. We're glad that you're doing well, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of building bridges. They're looking for allies to um, strengthen themselves against Assyria related to that. Well, when they came into the city of Jerusalem, uh, Hezekiah was so flattered by the attention that he then showed them all of the wealth of the city. 
showed them all of their all, all of the riches that they had, the whole layout of the city, everything about the city. He revealed everything to the Babylonians and and and, um, and and then he was confronted as a result of this uh, by Isaiah. And like I said, as we saw earlier, he did repent uh, of that. And so he showed everything that was in his house, everything under his dominion, obviously not wise even today, but certainly not as a king in the ancient world to reveal uh, the nation's wealth and defense to a potential enemy. But that's exactly uh, what he did. And we know um, there in verse 25 what Hezekiah's motive was behind uh, the showing of Babylon of all of these riches and all of this wealth. He did it because his heart was lifted up. And God was testing him. And here came these Babylonian envoy and they came flattering him and all. And the test was this. God was going to allow Hezekiah to conduct himself. And then God was watching and listening for Hezekiah's own kind of edification and self-knowledge. He would, the whole test was to see who Hezekiah would give credit to for the greatness of Judah and for the greatness of his reign. And so when the Lord pulled back from Hezekiah, uh, that's all that, w- that was supposed to be revealed is who would Hezekiah give the glory to for all that God had done. And apparently when he gives that grand tour of Jerusalem, he begins to take credit for what God has had done. Any credit that we receive, any glory that we receive for what God has done in our lives and through our lives is glory that God does not receive. And he deserves all of the glory. It's a funny thing, again. We don't look at Hezekiah and say, how could a guy be so dumb? What is it ridiculous? I would never do. Oh, no. I think a lot of us can see a potential of this in our own heart. Especially when we find ourselves in the place of Hezekiah. Walk with the Lord for a lot of years. God has blessed maybe materially in terms of reputation, significance, this kind of thing. And then we get to a place in life. We think we own this and we have this and we gain this title and we have this recognition and all of this. And little by little. We cease to say, this is what God has done by his grace in my life, owing everything to God's grace. And instead of that, we begin the conversation or what comes out of our mouth is, yeah, you know, we kind of wheeled and dealed and made and then over here and then this and this and I and me and we and my and me and my and my and I and the whole thing. And pretty soon. God has given us the fabulous life that he has given us. And then at the end of the life, we're taking credit for all of it. And it's just a very, very easy thing to slip into. The longer we walk with the Lord and the older we become, it's so important to look at anything that we own, anything that we have, any accomplishment that we have been able to accomplish And to say that is solely because of God's grace. Paul wrote, I think it was to the church at Corinth. And he said, what do you have that you have not received from God? And that's not just true of money or true of material things. That's true of a mind. A person has a great ability as an architect or as an engineer. Who gave them that mind? God gave them the mind. Somebody has great skill with a scalpel in their hand. Who gave them that skill? God gave the skill. Someone else has great empathy toward people. 
pours their life into other people's lives. People gravitate to them. Who gave that person that personality? God gave the personality. Every good thing that comes out of our life is by the grace of God. And he deserves all of the glory and all of the credit. Now, again, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. Wait a second, I'm getting a couple of names. I'm just saying, this is a remarkable human being who lived a remarkable life for God. And he fell prey to it late in his life. So it tells me it's a real temptation in our lives. And it's good to be aware of it. Be good for our final breath. If the Lord tarries and he doesn't rapture us out, our final breath to be uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace, (laughs) owing everything to his grace, because that's the truth about each one of our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. The worship team come forward. That would be great as well. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And very instructive, very powerful truths, simple truths, but powerful truths, and we thank you for them. And tonight, Lord, as your people, as we stand before you in this room, we just want to honor you with our faith. We want to bless you with our faith concerning any situation that we're looking at in our lives right now. We recognize the strength of the arm of flesh in our situation. But Lord, we take a moment to remember how great you are and to count you, Lord, in this situation for the deciding factor that you are in any circumstance in our life. We trust in you for our needs tonight. We honor you with our faith, Lord. And we look forward to you having the final say in every Sennacherib situation that we are facing this evening. And we proclaim ahead of time, Lord, that you will And we praise you for that tonight. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. Thank you for being as big as you are. Thank you for being as trustworthy as you have been to us, Lord. And we know we haven't noticed even a fraction of it. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to put our trust in you. And we thank you tonight. In the name of the one who has made that possible, in Jesus' name, amen.